You don't really have to start over. You can hide that mistake. It's amazing where sometimes casual conversation, just like we're having now, Every 50-foot ACF outside brace boxcar looks the same to me. I really fell in love with PC ties and track gauges and micro-engineer gauges. I see it, and I think... This is an illusionary art. And so now your caboose is in one town, and you're, you're switching in the other town. And But I don't know when or how or... You know, it drives them nuts. Triggers your brain, and you say, caboose, now I know what I'm going to do. You're listening to The Crossing Gate the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division of the National Model Railroad Association. The topics and discussions are about the world's greatest hobby, model railroading. Here are your hosts, Thomas Gazier and Ken Zeska. This episode of The Crossing Gate is sponsored by the local model railroad club. Do you want to run long trains but live in a small space? Well then cheer up bucko, you can join the local club. Yes, the local club has 20,000 square feet of space, all located in the basement of an abandoned blockbuster video in the worst suburb in town. The local club offers you an Appalachian coal mine, an Arizona desert gypsum plant, a Midwest grain elevator, a Cleveland auto plant, and the Hershey Chocolate Factory. Why? Because no one can agree on anything. You will be part of a group of 75 paying members, 10 of which you will meet, and 5 who will actually work on the layout. Okay, 4. You can join in on Saturday run days. You will see DD40s pulling Pennsylvania passenger trains. Southern steam engines on a double stack train, and silver Burlington E units on a West Virginia coal drag, plus most members sitting around and telling the same jokes they tell every Saturday. Oh, such fun! Now, if the local club is not for you, then you can always join the other club. Because if you have three model railroaders in your town, you will have two clubs. So join today, or you'll miss out on the fight over which DCC system to use. And now, a gripe from the curmudgeon. All right, here's a curmudgeon coming at you for the gripe of the pod. It's audio-related, so we're going to talk about those sound locomotives that don't have any of the uh, sound effects. I just want that. Instead of a horn honk, I want a passenger train where I can just hit the button and it goes, uh, and that's the curmudgeon's gripe of the bar. All right, so we're all ready for some hurdles. You guys got some, and I'll, uh, I'll introduce you, and everyone say hi, and then I'll say the topic, and then we'll let the fights begin. And no, we're not going to discuss DCC, <laughs> favorite DCC, <laughs> or how many engines do you got. That's, yeah. We're saving that for the... For the April Fool's edition, if we ever... Wait, wait a minute. What about Big Sky Blue? No, oh, Big Sky <laughs> Yes. Yes. How to balance your... How to clean your track. That was the one we should do. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Crossing Gate. I'm Thomas Gazier, and this episode, I have with me Luke Lemons. Hello. Greg Dahl. Hello. Dan Dosa. Hi. Mike Jordan. Hello. And William Sampson. Hello, hello. And this episode, we're going to talk about hurdles and obstacles in model rarity and how to overcome them, how, why, when, and uh, our group will discuss some hurdles they've 
endured or are enduring. So I'll throw it open to you guys. What's a hurdle that you're trying to overcome to improve your model rarity? I guess I'll jump in there first. Getting my locomotives to run smoother. It's a combination of working on the track, actually working on the locomotives, cleaning them. And, you know, everybody says don't oil them. But a friend of mine gave me a a locomotive. He said it doesn't run at all. And I just needed the shell, but I took it apart and it was full of uh, dog hair. And I cleaned the dog hair out and put a little oil on it. And it just, it's been running fine. So, you know, I jumped one hurdle. I got six more to go. That's that's my current hurdle is smooth operating locomotives. Six more to go. All right. Yep. We'll quiz you on that later. <laughs> Luke, anything on you uh, in your way for an obstacle currently or was well, in your way? Let's go with an old one here. When I started building my layout, I never thought about purchasing ground foam. With the monster that I built, I had to come up with something to green to greenery the layout. So I ended up making ground foam myself. I did see other methods to do it with like a blender and foam rubber and latex paint. Uh, but that wasn't enough for the way I wanted to do it. I, I needed more than just little batches of a blender. So I ended up finding a meat grinder worked really good. The old hand crate meat grinder. And I could chunk pick couch cushions for free. If they stunk, you just threw them back on the curb. The county recycle center by me, takes in latex paint and all type of other people's household waste and you can go there and you can get that stuff for free so i would go there and i would raid anything that was in the green hue and i would have all kinds of green paint to mix with the couch cushion so what we did was the uh, it was a little hard to crank it with the, just the hand crank so i powered this thing up uh, advisory this method is not the safest don't ever do this and i'm not uh, responsible for this method. I took the hand crank meat grinder, uh, mounted it to a 10-speed bicycle. So you mount the bicycle upside down on a pallet. The rear tire rides on the a motor, the three-quarter inch shaft. If anyone's good with ratios here, three-quarter inch to the 26-inch tire. Back down to the little sprocket, up to the big sprocket, and I mounted the meat grinder on the side. And I could shove sticks of foam, foam rubber through that thing like a chipper shredder, and I could vomit out boxes and boxes and boxes of ground foam for absolutely free. So that was my hurdle. It worked very well, actually. We'll go to Greg Dahl. Any uh, hurdles you're currently fighting? Uh, the hurdle I'm currently fighting is my airbrush. And it's not because of the airbrush itself. It's uh, my stupidity a lot of times. And I think, I mean, thousands and thousands of people airbrush paint models. I mean, the military guys do it. The, the model railroaders do it. The, Artists do it. And I think my biggest hurdle is just realizing that I'm not going to be Michelangelo the first time <laughs> I do it. The willingness to, to fail. I, my favorite is I, I belong to several of these, you know, internet, Facebook slash groups and stuff. And I love it when somebody posts a question, what's the best model paint to use? Cause you'll see in about five minutes, 600 replies, four of them <laughs> specify a paint. And the other 496 are why the other guy's an idiot. You know, it dawns on me. It's, it's not the paint. It's not the airbrush. It's not the, you know, if, if buying new tools would make me a better airbrusher, then, you know, buying new golf clubs would make me a pro golfer. Um, right. I just need to sit down and do it. And, you know, the willingness to be humble and say, hey, the first one is going to suck. The next one hopefully is a little better. And the next one after that, you know, hopefully it'll be on our way. Uh, that, that's my biggest hurdle right now. 
I would jump on that and say that I think the biggest way I, I think of hurdles is simply refusing to accept a learning curve. And somehow we get this idea, oh, I should just be able to do this. It takes time, practice, and work, and we have to make mistakes. And what was it you said once, Tom, the mark between a, a great modeler and a bad modeler is the number of things in their trash can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think people are think they have to come right out and they, they show it off and they're like, well, this is no good. And as we've said before, show me your hundredth model, you know, show me your hundredth two-line boxcar or something like that. And William, are anything you're going through right now or that's in um, your way? I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I have a, a laundry list of, of hurdles that I, I run into kind of as I model. But I think one of the biggest ones uh, as we get into, you know, the warmer seasons is motivation. And I think a lot of times I end up, you know, trying to motivate myself by, you know, starting a project that's new. And next thing you know, we've talked about this before, but you end up with 15 projects on the shelf and that's more than you want to deal with. And then it becomes, I'm going to create a laundry list of the things I want to do. And then I am overwhelmed by the laundry list I've created. And I look at it and say, well, where do I even start on this list? And to Luke's point about um, scenery, I mean, you can, it can be ballasting. It could be ground foam. It could be anything to tackle on the railroad. But it's that scale. Luke, you have a large railroad. Uh, I'm working in a smaller scale. Greg, you're working with large buildings. I've got large buildings. And those become kind of intimidating, the number of windows you're putting in. And it really comes down to that motivation to actually jump on the project and do it. I, I had those three SDL 39s. Uh, the motivation actually came from this this group at one point. You know, Mike, you kind of challenged and said that you had on your railroad a building that you're going to do. And it's been sitting there for 20 years. Well, I've been dreaming for 20 years to do those locomotives. And it was actually a conversation we kind of exchanged back and forth with that kicked that off. But so often it can be motivation. What drives you guys? I mean, to get yourselves going, whether it's to dive into that airbrushing project that, uh, you know, you haven't been wanting to do to put down the ground foam, like what pushed you over that hurdle for me is, is getting up that motivation. And I run into it semi-annually, but it's not, I mean, I'm not talking about a traditional physical element that we're working on on the railroad this is probably more of a, a psychological issue <laughs> i think it's the checking the things off the list i think is a good feeling and a lot of it's just every once in a while you just go for the low-hanging fruit i've done that a few times it's like what can i do even if i already have the 15 projects started let's grab 16 just because i know it's a low-hanging fruit and i can get something done and get something crossed off but what if that's something you want to cross off is not a really good skill of yours? you know how do you and then you're like i'm gonna have to face my hurdle to get this done right or what how I, long does it stay on your list yeah, how long does it stay what i ran into was installing dcc decoders and the speakers and all that and I got tired of paying for it. I said, well, I should be able to do this, these drop-in decoders. And I would look for videos or help. And I would learn as much as I could, but I never found videos for the exact models I was doing. And so as I plotted along and I fought my way through the first one, the second one I made a video of, you know, I'm like, well, I'm having trouble doing this. I'm sure someone else is. Here's how you rip out an Atlas board. Here I put a Nick's decoder buddy in. Here I put in, you know, the speaker. To keep alive here, I did, you know, and that was a real eye opener for me that I can do this without letting the smoke out and without paying someone hundreds of dollars that you can overcome some of this. Well, then, Tom, what jumps, what jumpstart that? What got you to finally say, all right, I'm going to put my own in? I know you said that you're not going to pay somebody for it, but where did you just come up with the decoder buddy LEDs and, and that information? Yeah, that's, 
I, I do think, you know, the money was a motivator, but it was also that I wanted certain things and I didn't want someone else who was going to install it to tell me, no, you can't do this. Sure. And I, I cut down weights. I milled weights. I knew I had soldering skills. And I think what got me going to is, is we've all figured out I'm the grog, the caveman of the group is that something like a decoder buddy simplified it. If I could solder the four wires from the trucks and the two from the motor to this board, then I had a 21 pin drop in. There's a soundtrack scooter. You just shove it on. And then there's a little simple board. So I found the path of least resistance in technology had finally evolved where Grog could put a decoder in, you know? (laughs) And, And then I also asked, having a hive mind like you guys and some other friends of where does the keep alive go? What does it do? What speaker do you use? What's a, you know, and I discovered these iPhone speakers versus these other huge speakers and you can fit everything nicely in a, in an HO engine now. Yeah. It, it was really quite the hurdle to come over. Now my still hurdle is JMRI and decoder pro, but once again, I, I go to my friends and I'm very good at taking notes. So just the willingness to, I want to do this myself and get exactly the sound that I want. And, and I want to run nice as, as uh, Mike was saying earlier, there's a lot to this, but I wanted to, if my engine's going to run poorly, it was because of the tr- dirty track or dirty wheels. I didn't want it because of the mo- decoder or the install or anything like that. I would agree with the money thing, but uh, that's how I learned to airbrush, not a paint and do engines. I contracted out a few to get painted up. And after that, I'm like, I could do that for that price. I mean, that's what, really prompted me to start painting my own stuff. How many locomotives do you think you've painted then, Luke, since learning to airbrush? I would say there's a, probably at least 50, 60. Mm-hmm. Wow. The roster, the Holy smokes. The roster, <laughs> white uh, engines, too. Yeah, white <laughs> engines, too. White yeah. is uh, not a very fun thing to paint. And then my son modeled the CNW, so yellow. That yellow. Was not a, that's another fun one. That's yeah. a fun one. Yeah. Um, my next letter will be the Norfolk Southern and Penn Central. Yes, I would agree with that. And that's, <laughs> I think, would be a really nice railroad to model. Nice railroad. So, yeah, all black, dip it black, and throw a couple decals on the side of the thing. So, Dan, you know, we, we talked about this learning curve, and you have to, you know, you know you're going to make mistakes. And I think that's a tough thing for people to have. And you and I have talked about weathering. And I'd like, can you expound on your beautiful Rapido engines? And how you plan to go about dealing with weathering those? Well, I'm thinking probably in about 60 years, I'll know <laughs> enough to do it. Uh, you know, but I mean, you're right. Uh, weathering is my hurdle. I've weathered a few cars, and I, and I don't profess to be any particular, have any particular skills with it. So this is a work in progress. You know, what I've come to is I'm going to have to work on weathering junk and throwaways. And I also know I'm going to have to kind of reach this point where I'm ready to set up my workstation. So I've got my airbrush ready to go. I've got some proficiency with that. I've got all all of the weathering materials together, and then I can work on those. I've decided that what I'll do is I will defer on that project, make that a submarine for me, because I don't want to get into that right now, because I want to get some more traction on the scenery on my layout. And then I can have that piece further along, and then focus on working on weathering things. And believe me, that $300 plus Rapido engine is going to be one of the last things that I touch uh, (laughs) to weather because I don't want to make a mess of it. Well, that's interesting. You know, you talk about a $300 plus engine, and I know it's one of the most intimidating things to do is weather an engine. 
Now, Dan is an exceptional modeler in terms of uh, the scenery and and making something look. He does the Nokomis Mill, and it makes it look like the Nokomis Mill. So it's applying that skill that you're you're making those elevators look like legit elevators. And then how do you translate the the roads and the cracks and the detail that you put into that stuff? And now lift it from the road, pull it from the elevator, and apply those skills to the freight car. Because the the toughest thing, and like you said, okay, start with a less desirable model. That's one thing. But if you end up taking a locomotive, I was always so intimidated, but it finally got to a point that weather freight cars until you're blue in the face and you're like, all right, I got freight cars. I can do buildings. I can do roads. I can do freight cars. Now we're going to do that locomotive. It's still one of the most intimidating things to do because that's what everybody looks at is that locomotive. So then for Dan to be able to hop that hurdle, He's hopping through the buildings, the roads, eventually get to his freight cars to get to that. You know, I think, you know, 60 years might be, you know, a little too soon for you, Dan. (laughs) I I think so. But taking your skills, like you've got mad skills in the, in the modeling world for the structures and the roads and, and translating that then into the freight car and eventually to the locomotive. I mean, on your own to be able to be confident enough to be able to step into that arena. Yeah, exactly. I do think the good news is one one of the things that I that I have concluded is I, I'm at least trainable. So I can learn skills. That's the good news. But I also know when my skills are not at a level that I'm going to be happy with. Are, just, are you, you know, saying some of us are not trainable? Is that you know? Is that, <laughs> not that I'm not not that I'm pointing at anybody, <laughs> hey, sir. Hey. Not that I'm pointing, hey. but that, you know, I think, thank thank you. Thank you, Will. I know I I can learn skills, but I also know I will need to work at it and practice. Yep. And I think more intimidating to me with locomotives is that there's a lot of tricks and techniques to where the weathering goes on a locomotive, whereas buildings just get dirty. (laughs) They stream and they get, you know. And the rain washes down and then they streak and they get, you know, pigeon poop on the top. And, you know, to me, dirtying up a building is a much easier task. And for whatever reason, I think the buildings are more forgiving. They might be. Greg, you kind of brought up the same thing with an airbrush. Now, I've heard this from other people, and but I just don't see it like going to the local show or flea market and picking up scrap shells and for the dollars or two dollars just to try. I are you doing that, Greg? Are you stockpiling some old engines or cars just to even airbrush all the different colors and thinners? So you know the answer. Am I stockpiling anything? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> the, the blue tote. The blue tote of, of death. I've actually even took a step back from that and said, I've actually got some scraps of styrene here. I said, I'm just going to start painting, you know, plain plastic. Um, how do the primers work? And the other thing is, is, in this in, in particular is sticking to one particular thing. I, I've chosen Vallejo paints. There's probably 90% of the people that will tell you, hey, I hate Vallejo paints. Um, it's what is easily accessible for me. It seems to work for some people, so I'm just going to stick with it until I get it to work as opposed to just, you know, jumping from one to the I think that's one way we shoot ourselves in the foot. With You, know, you try something, it doesn't work. Well, I'm going to do something completely different, you know. I'm going to make this building on a styrene. Oh, the corners aren't square. I know I'll make it out of wood. Oh, that didn't work out either. Oh, now I'm going to do resin because that's now I'll do a plaster kit, you know, and you keep jumping around. Whereas if you just stuck to your original thing and said, 
okay, I, I made a mistake. You know, this thing, this building didn't come out square, but at least now I, I've got some practice with styrene. I'll, I'll do it again. You know, the next one I'll do the same thing. So one thing about styrene, I was told that try painting clear styrene. If you paint clear, then you hold it up to the light. You can see what your coverage is. Oh, where were you with five years ago? So, that's what I was taught with. Yeah, if you got like rolls of, I got uh, like an overhead projector film, just rolls and rolls of like clear styrene. You sure. just pin that up and just spray it back and forth and see what your coverage is. Hold it up to the light and go, eh, that didn't cover real good. You just learn how to get your even coverage. Another thing with learning for airbrushing is paint stuff with ribs. Ribs are like, doors yeah. on an engine hood you got to get all the hard parts first before you go back in and get all the easy parts when painting those were some of the techniques that i was told when learning how to airbrush i think my hurdle with airbrushing was having the patience to understand many 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 light coats beats the one big glob one yeah you know just absolutely have some patience put it on there let it even acrylics get the hair dryer let it go Enjoy the process, you know, rather than, I think that's my, how I've won with yellow, fighting with yellow engines. Well, yellow is tough. And what, how many coats do you think you use on your locomotive? Oh, more than 10. Sure. Because wow. I, I go really light and just let it dry. Yeah. Because, you know, other, otherwise you get drops on there, then then you got to start over. So I watch the pressure. I, like I said, like Greg, like I have extra shells laying around and I just go at it to make sure I'm not spattering things. Because I used to paint with, Floquil, and of course that went the way of the dinosaur. So now I'm trying to mix the Vallejos and every other ten brands in there. Ken Zeska has joined us. Hello, Ken. Hi guys. Sorry I'm late. I just spaced out and walked the dogs first. Well, I, we love the dogs. So yeah, so I'm really happy that I got here when I did. I think Luke's tip alone is worth the price of admission. <laughs> the acrylic. Well, yeah. the spraying on the clear. Any, the clear. Anything, anything clear. Pull. You know, orange juice can containers out of your garbage or something. Just cut a Ooh. clear sheet of that. Anything that's clear, try airbrushing on something that's clear so you can look, hold it up to the light and see what your what your coverage is. Yeah. Boy, that's a great tip. That's a great tip. Now, Mike, you talked about smoother running locos, which to me is many hurdles because you could be fighting the motor in the engine. You could be fighting the gearbox. Dan and I were talking about this earlier on Bachman. You could be fighting dirty track and you could be fighting a bad decoder, you know? So do you see that as a multi-pronged hurdle that when you, you're going to go over your whole fleet or you're going to take it one at a time? I'll do them one at a time. I do have some Walters uh, locomotives that run very smoothly. And if they don't run, then it's dirty track or dirty wheels. So I, I do have a core of good running locomotives, but I've been uh, fixated on trying to get my Bachman GE 70 tonners to function correctly. And, and they don't. I've bought a dozen of them and I've you know, force myself to try to make them work. And then in a casual conversation about three weeks ago, Joe said, well, you should get some Northwest short line Stanton drives. He says they run real smooth and uh, he's used them on some of his projects, not specifically GE 70 tonners. So it took me about two weeks for all that information to slowly penetrate this uh, cold oatmeal of a brain and i ordered a stanton drive and it'll be here in a couple of weeks so you know i'm trying to be 
Well, I am excited about when this thing comes to actually attempt to make one of them work. Well, the Stanton Drive is $84. Well, I got five of them I want to do. But then I realized if I could buy a good GE 70 tonner, I'd be willing to pay 150 bucks for it. So, right, right. So, you know, the the cost, you know, I made fun of it's just money, but I'll pay the $85 per locomotive to make them work if I can get them to work. And so we'll just, you know, that's my hurdle right now is, you know, my GE 70 tonners. So it's amazing where incentive comes from. And again, it was just a casual conversation with Joe and it was, you know, it was a slap your forehead moment. That's, you know, so just like William was saying, you know, you talk to fellow modelers and uh, yeah. sometimes they th- say things that are quite intelligent and they don't even realize it. Yeah, because it strikes a chord. So, yeah. William, you talked about what pushes you over the hurdle. So, who has pushed you or what have you found out for building your layouts and working on your dad's and others? Where do you I mean, get inspiration? I collectively, uh, this group that we're talking with here is a huge inspiration just from it's turning the mind and, and thinking of it different ways. Just like Mike said. He talks about a 70 tonner. He wants to get it running and the Stanton drives is that's a great solution for it. But how do you know about that stuff unless you admit to some of the issues you're having? If you don't say, you know, well, I've got these 70 tonners and there's a problem with them. If I throw anything out to this whole group, a lot of times you guys will chime in and throw something out. And even at flea markets, I talk to more people than I do shopping and looking for, you know, other projects to be working on. I'd rather pick the brain of a modeler to learn more. As I'm a younger modeler, there's a vast number of people that are out there that just know so much. And I think it's asking those questions. I do too. I think it's getting some other opinions and help. Now, Ken, we'll we'll get to you. Do you have any major hurdles besides just being an S scale? I don't think that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it does add hurdles because you just can't go out and buy as many things. But I had a hurdle of airbrushing and and talking here. And then I was on another Zoom call and uh, listened to Ralph Franziti talking about painting, started asking him questions. And he went through in great detail how he does things and how much pressure he uses. And that was very, very helpful. You know, we were at our modelers meet and there were a couple of presentations there that I walked away with ideas, helped me model. And, and you know, that's one of the things I, I mentioned to people in the S-scale community when they say, well, I can't imagine any reason to belong to the NMRA. And I say, well, it's because you meet other modelers that are doing things and all these ideas are not scale specific. So I'm I'm interested. I, I've experimented with Stanton drives. I've got a couple. So Mike, I'll, I'll be interested to see. I wasn't really satisfied with putting two Stanton drives on one decoder. I thought it, it just didn't work right. But that might have been something I did. So I said it it went it submerged and it's now down <laughs> in, in the submarine pen waiting to come back up and try it again. You know, just learning things about what kind of wire to use when you're when you're installing decoders, installing wiring, what kind of LEDs to get. There's so many uh things. And I'm a visual learner, so I that's why I like the modelers retreat. And that's why I like doing Zoom calls or I like having hands-on presentations like we did at the Twin City Division, it's not as efficient for me to read a, an article and say, oh, yeah, I can figure that out. I, I need to see some pictures. 
Yeah, so. I think Ken will have to schedule a hands-on airbrushing clinic with Joe Binish. Bring bring about twenty compressors and brushes and let everyone at. Absolutely, so what a great idea. Well, let me ask you guys because I learn the best, like visually sitting down next to somebody. How do I do this on a computer? How do I do that? Would you guys like that if there were like hands-on clinics on weathering? You know, here's some scrap cars and here's your pan pastels. Here's this or here's your hands-on clinic on installing a decoder. You got to sit at a table with your engine. And you had certified installers to come around and ask questions. Do you guys like learning that way? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, that's one of the things that I really want to push for our modelers meet next year is that we have more hands-on clinics. Do you think any of you would be willing, I'm not, you're not volunteering now, no way, but to to do this, to give a hands-on to someone, even one-on-one of a hurdle you overcame? Because I always, I always find it interesting when I see someone at the point of, I can't get this to work. And I can tell them I couldn't get it to work either until I did this. Has any, have you guys ever done that for someone, been that mentor? Well, I would do it in a heartbeat. I I think Bob Rivard is openly, and I think one of the comments made early by Dan was to have your stuff set up. Uh, I mentioned Bob because he has his airbrush set up and I was at his place and he just said, William, come over here and just, it's just like this. And he flips it all on. It's all right there and it's ready to go. And he shows me his, you know, the pressure, how the pressure settings are, the the viscosity to be able to thin out his paint, like everything that he's doing, he's showing you there firsthand. I mean, I would personally show guys how to weather. I've tried to show my dad on a few different occasions and I've done some videos on it and said, this is the process that I use for trucks. But watching a video is one thing, but actually applying the actual pressure and having the teacher standing there with you. I feel like I just actually finished up with my son's little league team. And working with a bunch of kids that have no idea how to play baseball. And now you're sitting there going, no, here's how you hold the bat. He, the kids all have a bat in their hand and you work along that process. And over the course of three months, these kids have transformed from barely being able to swing and picking dandelions to actually putting a game together and swinging a bat. And I think that's the same with our, our modeling skills. I mean, I would, I would volunteer in a heartbeat if you can get like a micro marker. If we can get a collective, um, you know, maybe guys have to just bring their own pan pastels and see how those different pan pastels work. That type of hands-on experience is, it's, it's basically, there's no way to replace it. I think, uh, you know, Tom, you've had, been just an advocate of showing stuff and how it's done, you know, just when you're at your railroad. But Ken setting up that modeler's retreat, I've, it was probably two or three years ago. Ken says, well, just come on down. Just come down and check out with what it's all about. And once I did that, then you start seeing firsthand, you can ask the Bob Rivard, you can talk to Luke Lemons, you can ask these guys firsthand what they did. And that's one thing, but actually to be able to physically do it, I think that is kind of a game changer. We're in Little League and we want to get to the majors. I really agree with that. I think that a hands-on type of clinic is just a wonderful experience. The tricky part, of course, is you've got to be to be at the right place at the right time. You know, For me, a hands-on clinic with airbrushing and weathering that would be wonderful because that's what I need. Other people might be saying, no, I need a hands-on about laying my track or wiring or all sorts of other things that, that people might be baffled with. But I think that those things, really having somebody right there with you, you know, I'll give you a simple example. When I was doing those turnout throws, you know, I didn't have somebody with me, but Tom, you and Greg both explained to me how this was done. And Greg had a working model. You guys kept talking about, well, it's either a C or a Z. And, and I'm like, I don't have any idea what the heck you guys are talking about. <laughs> Finally, I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, 
So it either goes this way or it goes this way. Oh, duh. Okay. All right. Got it. Now I understand. But I needed to physically see it. And like having Greg's model there, I, I could look at them. Now I understand what these linkages are doing. Now I understand how I create the linkages. And you've even adapted it to have the linkage power the frog. Yeah. Know, which blew me away. I'm like, okay, he added three wires and he's, and I saves me a $60 frog juicer. You just, it spirals into each other. Um, anybody else had that moment they want to share? I keep static grass, my static grass applicator right there. And, and I'll often have people come over and say, how do you do this? Well, I've got big areas that need it. And I'll say, well, here, you hold this and I'll go through it and, and I'll say, okay, take it up, hold it over there and just back and forth. See how it's working? Well, is that it? Yeah, that's that's what you do. And they walk away saying, okay, now I know what to look for and now I, now I know I can do it. Is that like Tom Sawyer with him painting the fence here? I'll show you how to paint the fence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let it me is. know when you got that whole field all kind of. for me. You didn't you have you're to exactly throw him right. under the bus, Luke. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> Do you charge him a quarter to do it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yep. th see, this is you're right. This this group gives you ideas. Yeah. The next I time would, I'll charge him a half a buck. I would agree with the hands-on thing for airbrushing, because that's how I got taught that I had that local hobby shop custom paint a few things for me. And after that, I'm like, God, price, I could, I think I should probably learn to do this myself. And he says, Yeah, just he told me to get something ribbed. So I picked up an Atherin gun and he says, I'll show you how to paint. So I went out to his house and he showed me all the steps of what he did to paint. And that's how I started learning. Just something cheap and something yep. something yeah. simple. And it's, it's the hands-on doing it. But my question is for everybody that's got the hang-up of the hurdles of airbrushing, how much of it is set up? Like William said, you go to Bob's and it's like, oh, you want to see? Flick. You, everything's all set up for him and you just dive right in. If you have to actually like take the airbrush out of the box and do all the stuff and get the drag the compressor out of the garage. How much of that is the hurdle that's not letting you yes. dive no. into it? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I just bought one of these airbrushes that sits on its own compressor. It's a little round hand. And the reason I did that is uh, I was sitting talking to a guy and, and he was doing some airbrushing and some weathering in the middle of a Zoom chat. And I said, Tony, what are you doing? And he showed me, and he says, well, see, I just weather. And I said, really? He says, yep, I've got uh, two of these little things, one's with this color, one's with that color. They only cost like 40 bucks. They're right there. I can clean them real easily, but they're ready to go. All I have to do is drop paint in it. Don't have to find the compressor. Don't have to do anything. And I use acrylics, so I've got this little booth here. It's just so simple. And so I thought, well, okay, I got to give that a try. How do you like it, Ken? Dan, I just got it, so I, I don't know. I'm going to give it a try, and if you want to come over and try it, great, please do. I would love to. I'd love to check that out. Another skill I'll have to learn. Sure. <laughs> I'd like to touch on something that Luke said. Again, you know, these little simple comments that you just kind of throw away hit you. And Luke said, well, how do you overcome that hurdle of getting your airbrush set up? You got to take it out of the box and do all that stuff. I had a little trouble with finishing my ballasting and my uh, scenery. Well, I ended up making a rolling cart and one shelf has my ballast and the other shelf has all my scenery uh, stuff. And the top of the cart is my work surface. 
it's always out in the open and I just will roll it into the area that I want to work on. And uh, my white glue is already mixed up. My All my different types of colors for scenery are mixed up in little yogurt containers. And uh, same thing with my ballast. I got half a dozen little containers of ballast of different colors. It overcomes that hurdle of crawling underneath the railroad, lifting up the skirt, dragging everything back out, setting it up. Well, it's, I guess the hurdle is to make whatever project you're working on easy to get to. Those tools are easy to get to yep. hidden. Yep. So I think that's, that's the one way you can overcome a hurdle if it's spring or scenery or weathering, just having those things easy getting, to get. Getting the setup lined up. You can, uh, you can put that on the list of things to make your list even longer too. Now I got another project. Another project. The rolling cart. But no, that was G. You know, I I picked up two of those rolling carts. I saw Mike's. I think Ed Petrie had one. I'm like, well, how do you keep dragging bags of woodland scenery? No, you just wheel this cart over. Yeah. And there's your glue and your foam. Doug Conklin, he's got one. Tom Conklin, yeah. Yeah. I've even seen guys do that who built a lot larger layouts than mine, like Luke's. They would have a rolling thing for building the turnout. The switches. Oh, sure. And they'd have a file on there and a grinder, and they just go around and. And that was another thing for me. One of the biggest hurdles was building switches. My whole life, I wanted a layout like the ones you saw in magazines, where the yards flowed and the curves were fine. And I knew I couldn't get that till I built my own. Tim Weris came out with fast tracks, but I just used their fixtures and learned and learned and learned. You know, and like I said, the first one was built by a drunk monkey. <laughs> and the second one was a high school shop class and the guy got a B minus, but the third one went on my layout. I wish I kept the first one. Cause then I you, it would just show you how far you've come. Yes. And I hope Dan and Greg and everyone else who wants to airbrush, whatever car you weather from the flea market, keep that, just put it in a box and label it. And then when you, when you've weathered your 30th engine, hold it up. And don't yep. grimace. Just see how far you've come over that hurdle. Dan's learned probably from doctor doctor school and everything else is that, you know, you learn the skill, you do the skill, you teach the skill. What I've noticed for airbrushing is it's not that I'm getting better. I've learned how to limit my mistakes. We know you're not getting better. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, know, I, you know, when I peel the tape off, at least I'm somewhat happy with it. You know, it's... <laughs> I don't. I don't want to completely redo it, so I'm getting better at it. I'm not. What do you call that moment when you remove? There should be a name for that when you remove the tape because heavier weathering. (laughs) Decal that part. Mother Jesus, please. Yeah, Yeah. please, 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 please bust this engine. Yeah. Why don't your engines have stripes, Tom? Take a guess. Yeah. (laughs) The the thing that I, I I think can't be said too strongly is exactly the process that's happening here. Either we, you know, we, we both learn skills and techniques from each other. We get inspired by each other to get back in there and try again. Now, like William said, you know, we, you know, it gets us fired up and motivated again. Take another new run at the projects. Let's rediscover the joy of working on our railroad. And I think of that a lot of just rediscovering the joy when I go in there and do some little thing on it. I think all of those help. The other piece we haven't talked about is that sometimes we just get stuck. 
in, in psychology, we talk about a term called functional fixedness. And that basically means we get stuck in our own thinking and we can't get out of it. Tom saved my life with my layout. You guys have seen it, except you, Luke. Someday, I'll get there. We'll get you there. Some fairly specific requirements. I knew the lines I wanted to model. I knew I wanted a layout designed for operation, which could accommodate two operators. I wanted to make a prototype based, you know, all of these, these things. And I kept trying to squeeze it into the available space I had. Well, I couldn't make it work, couldn't make it work, couldn't make it work. It just didn't fit. And part of the reason was I kept trying to do it all on one level. Gazer comes over and in a couple of minutes of looking at my lab, he says, well, the lines don't have to connect. They don't in real life. So why don't you stack one above the other? Boom. And all of a sudden, this impossible project, you know, I, I was able to fairly quickly solidify the layout plan. That's that, that whole analysis paralysis term where you sit there and just stare at stuff until you drive your, until you don't do anything, but just stare at it, trying to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. That's uh, a hurdle. I was thinking of like projects for modeling kit bashing for like in the engines and stuff like that. I guess my thought is at what, where do you start cutting and trying to figure the whole game plan? I guess my thought was what's your plan B if you go through and you cut something a little too deep, what can you do differently to dig yourself back out of that hole. Then you have another hurdle. Then you have another hurdle. <laughs> at least you can pre-think of, w- of what your plan B is going to be for something. I was just going to say, and on Luke's front, though, is the, the knowledge and information that gets kind of thrown out there, just kind of off the cuff by some of you guys. One of them was Joe Binish saying, the viscosity of the paint for airbrushing needs to be like skim milk. That's, that, That's, told- that just stuck with me. Yeah. And then Stir Bob it. Rivard, I had one of the things, again, going back to Bob, but it was, um, I was frustrated. I'm like, I don't like cleaning up the airbrush. He literally grabbed his thinner, popped it into his airbrush, sprayed the thing out and goes, it's clean. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. that's it? I mean, yeah. it was that simple. And I'm sitting here worried because I used to take the whole gun all apart and take all the stuff out. And he's using it a little bit more often. But another one, Luke, you pointed out was look at things like shapes. If shapes, you break yes. it down to simple shapes. And that has stuck with me. So kit bashing, I mean, you do a lot of it yeah. and you're not afraid to dive into it, but there are guys out there that are afraid to dive into the kit bashing and, and what got you past that hurdle to then dive into some of that crazy kit bashing. Well, I went to tech school for industrial model building for two years out of high school and I decided not to pursue that career, but that's the one thing that taught us there was look at everything but shapes. And I've had a lot of people come back and cuss at me going, you know what? I was looking at something <laughs> also and I heard this. Luke going, it's nothing but shapes. Look at yeah. it, nothing but shapes. And if you can get that drill into your head, you take anything and just break it down to nothing but shapes. If you can cut yourself a square or cut yourself a circle out of a out of a rod, I mean, just look it down to stack the shapes together. And if you can break it down that way, you can build anything. Anybody ever made a water car and used a glue stick or yes, a, a, glue a stick. glow stick or whatever glow you stick did? Case. Yeah, it's nothing but shape. I have a whole drawer full of just part just shapes well you Luke, you, you still blew me away and but everybody else because i to this day i don't know how you did it you your hurdle was making these cp tank hoppers oh yeah i, I don't know like- if anybody knows what these are but this canadian pacific had these covered hoppers they're around and nobody makes these things and you brought these to the oh. rpm meet yeah over literally them, carved out of a block of acrylic 
A bl- block of foam. Yeah, it was block of foam. Whatever. It's a, it's, it's a small cylindrical. It's an early, early cylindrical hopper between the slab sides and the cylindrical. So it's a real squatty little teardrop kind of shape thing. Yeah. And I was just zoning one day at work going, mm, it's a shape. It, it's a shape. If I kind of lop it off, if I cut the profile on the end yeah. and the profile on the side, that should all line up together. And I got this yeah. core. Because Greg and Gall and I were looking at this because you, you brought the clear piece of foam. Yeah, and the scrap pieces, and Greg and I are still looking at each other like, "What the heck are yeah, we I, looking I, at?" I brought all the stuff that I cut off this block. It's it's right. red shape. It's a urethane foam, but it's based on density. And I I had a chunk of it. I, my my bandsaw wasn't big enough to cut it vertically, so I had to lop it in half. But yeah, it's just make the shape and then build everything off that shape. Yeah, but that was a hurdle. Yeah. If you if you're looking at just shapes, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't find anything on the cars. I'm like, those are really distinct. I I found a set of plans, and I'm like, you know, let's cut here and we'll cut there, and that'll whatever's left off will be the core of the hopper. So a couple of common threads I'll go through this, and if anyone wants to comment, jump in. Was William brought up a great thing with the little league because you're basically teaching these excited kids how to play the game from scratch. You know, what hand does your mitt go in? Where does the bat go? Why do you have to walk away after three strikes, et cetera? I think a mentor or a coach, if you're facing a hurdle, that's where, like Ken says, the NMRA comes in. Groups like this come in. Seek out more than one place of advice. If you watch one YouTube video, go look for five more. Go look on Train Masters. Go look in the forum. But a mentor or a coach can get you through anything. And Dan's philosophy of, get over it you know the learning curve you have to accept you're not gonna have your best effort the first time you build a switch whether a car airbrush something your first tank hopper you know anything like that those were kind of the common threads anyone else got to enter i'll i'll go around the room ken you got anything to say no i think uh i think you covered it uh, and that's really what i believe we're trying to accomplish in the division we're trying to accomplish with this podcast, we're trying to accomplish with the modelers meet is we're trying to reach out and create more relationships where we can learn from each other. Uh, these skills that, that are so satisfying can be intimidating. So it's great to have a group you can learn from. Mike, you got anything to add for finals there? My advice is to hang out with people that are better modelers than you are. <laughs> and so here I am. Yes, that's why we have you here. Don't tell him, guys. Okay, Greg, anything you want to throw in there for hurdling? Maybe it's just a rehash of what you talked about, but manage your expectations. I think the internet and even the modeling magazines to some extent have done a poor job because they always show you the finished product and they always show you the master. And they say, here, here, you know, here. Here's the perfect, you know, the guy's done five, he's painted 500 engines and it's got perfect stripes on the end, you know, and then you try to do it in the first time and it's just, you know, it looks like a drunk, like you said, a drunken monkey did it. You have to manage those expectations of yourself, I think is really the key. And an explanation. Dan. You know, I would just add that if you adopt the stance of, I don't know how to do that now, yeah. that doesn't mean, the one thing I, I think in the hobby if you can stay away from, well, I can't do that. I'll never be able to do it. No, I can't do that now. That doesn't mean I can't learn it. And once you do that, 
you've kicked the barn door wide open to limitless possibilities. Exactly. Very good. Luke. I guess I was, the way I look at it is people ask me to paint stuff and I don't take on projects, but I'm more than willing to help. It's the old teach a man to fish thing. If you give him one fish, he'll eat for one day. But if you teach him how to do it, he'll be able to do it forever. I guess that's my my thought about it. So you push him over the hurdle. I like. Yeah, it, push him over the hurdle. I'll be I more like than it. helping to tell you how to paint. <laughs> I'm not going to do it for you because I don't really want to take right. on any more projects. But no, I think I think you're 100 percent correct in that. And William, I would uh, I would echo everything everybody had said in in the fact that it's admitting your mistakes and that's the way you're going to find the solution if you don't know what mistakes you're making. Uh, you know, that's one way to be able to do that is ask other modelers. I think the number one thing I always take take away from even these conversations is what is that catchphrase? What is that one thing that is the Joe Binish skim milk, you know, the Bob Rivard, the thinner, the Luke lemons and the just look at it as shapes. When you go visit a railroad, ask that guy. When you go to, you know, a flea market, pick the brain of those guys that are there that are the master model railroaders or whatnot. And if you don't have a community, you can't find one. I mean, the NMRA is a good place to start. Like Ken had mentioned about the Twin Cities retreat. That is by far one of my favorite events to go to now. And unfortunately, we didn't do it last year but uh, or this past year. But that's one of the things that really drives me as a modeler is connecting and getting together, period. And if it's through a Zoom call like this or if it's actually going to a model railroad and operating, it's breaking down those barriers and areas where you you sit there and think, well, I don't like ballasting. I don't like custom painting. I don't like these things because of these reasons. Then ask those guys, why? How do you do this custom painting? How do you do your ballast? And what products are you using? And would you show me what it is that you do to create this? And that's what I think is a good takeaway. All right. I like it. Good chat, guys. I think I think we're the Edwin Moses of model rarity now. We can do the hurdles. So. <laughs> All right. That'll end it up. Wrap up this episode. Thank you guys for your time. Everyone say good night. Good night. Good night, sir. Good night. Catch you next time. Yep. podcast of the Twin Cities Division. You can find us on Facebook in our group, the Twin Cities Division of the NMRA. You can email us at tcdnmra at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe for future podcasts.